Welcome, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on the Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. There is a professor and a thinker, and writer, activist who has been on the show a great deal over the last bunch of years here. Uh, I guess for the last eight years almost, he's been joining us on the air, something like that, close five. to it. Maybe five, okay, I'll take five. <laughs> and Dr. Lawrence Brown from the uh, School of Public Health at Morgan State University. And he created this Facebook page called BRACE, B-R-A-C-E, the Baltimore Redevelopment Action Coalition for Empowerment. That has now got over 2,000 people who are part of it in these incredibly powerful, interesting, and deep discussions about race, class, development, the future of our city, the future of our society. And I think it is probably the best new Facebook page uh, in the last year that's been developed. Uh, And I've been dying to get Lawrence back in the house here to talk about it. And uh, he's in our studios here at the Center for Emerging Media. And Lawrence, good to see you, brother. Man, it's great to be back. Glad you could be. Yeah, glad An you honor. Here. Yes. To be here uh, on such a august occasion where the Mark Steiner show is going out in style. We're going to go out in style. Yes, sir. That's so it. That's, and you have to be I'm part honored. of that style. I'm honored to be a part <laughs> of it, yes. So t- talk about why you founded this this Facebook page. What what I mean, you've been working a lot around how the depth of racism uh, and the history of uh, of structural racism in our society has kind of defined who we are, and you've been pushing that idea about what it means, but also how to change it. So, I mean, talk about what that has to do with this. Well, really, Brace, I should mention, is a, is an actual nonprofit. It was founded oh. in East Baltimore um, with folks, residents, who were displaced by Johns Hopkins uh, as it was by EBDI. Is this the Mideast thing that happened before? The stuff exactly, the, the Middle right. East. Uh, it's sort of like the follow-up group to SMEAC, the Save oh, Middle East Action Coalition. I didn't put it together until you just said that. Right, right, right. right. And right, so right. we sort of, um, you know, I, when I came to Baltimore in 2010, um, I think by 2011 there was a gentleman at um, – I believe it was the Men and Family Center uh, named Mike Rogers. He was a, a a student at Hopkins, I believe, at the time, but an activist and basically connected me to Donald Gresham, who was working around EBDI. Right. And, uh, his community had been displaced by that time. And so uh, I was always interested in, like, redevelopment, like, from a scholarly perspective. And when I was a student at Morehouse back in 97, uh, in Atlanta, house, yeah, <laughs> we there was a, a public housing development. I believe it was called Harris Homes that was across the street from Morehouse College, and they were in the third phase of displacing everybody through the Hope Six uh, Clinton initiative, which demolished around a quarter of a million public housing units, and Harris Homes was one of them. And so I had had an interest in that. So when I moved to Baltimore, I was interested in how displacement was playing out here. So I hooked up with Donald Gresham and. Uh, Sally Gorham and Lisa Francis and all these people who were still engaged around a fight that by this time had been over 10 years long uh, since uh, EBDI was first announced back in 99 when Martin O'Malley was still mayor. And so this group basically, as this redevelopment was still taking place, and they were still fighting for certain rights, a home for a home, uh, the ability to make sure that if there was still demolition taking place, that it would take place in a safe manner. You know, so they were still fighting for all of these rights because this redevelopment project takes years, it was years, decades, really, to sort of uh, play itself out. 
and I uh, sort of came in in the middle of that, joined the effort, and the organization was formed, and so I formed the Facebook page or for the group to really sort of uh, give the nonprofit like a space online where we could have these discussions and really sort of talk about the issues of redevelopment throughout the city. This was pre-Port Covington, pre-Harbor East, right. you know, pre the mega TIF that TIFs that were coming along. But as a matter of fact, back in 2011, you know, EBDI was, I believe, one of the biggest, well, there was a, the Harbor or East. the Hilton Hotel. Right, right, right. That was huge, but uh, that was actually a slightly different, I believe, through revenue bonds, if I'm not mistaken, but, you know, EBDI was one of the biggest at $78 million in TIF bonds, one of the bigger TIFs that had actually taken place at the time. And, of course, it involved a lot of other government funding, as Melody Simmons and Joan Jacobson outlined in their story with um, one of the news outlets here, uh, the Maryland Daily Record, in their story, Too Big to Fail. You know, they really sort of outlined how the uh, we had already used back in 2011, $212.6 million in public funds to displace, you know, over 700 people, uh, families in the Middle East. And we felt like, you know, in many ways, these stories weren't being told enough. Uh, of course, then as now, you know, things like police brutality get a lot of, um, and crime, you know, police brutality and crime, those are very sensational and, you know, right. we end up knowing the names of people like Freddie Gray. But urban redevelopment is not as sexy as those topics are. It's not as immediately arresting as a murder or a police brutality death. So, you know, we felt it was important to sort of try, how do we get the word out and begin to create a narrative that really shows how redevelopment and urban renewal actually in many ways underpin much of what we see in terms of crime and policing in Baltimore City. So let's make these connections. Let's, let's go backwards for a moment. So mm -hmm. to, well, let's go back to the, all the stuff you worked on. You've created these incredible maps um, of Baltimore that show the history of development and race and segregation and whether legal or, or, or de facto and illegal segregation that, that exists in our society. And you created this thing called the White L and the Black Butterfly. And as I told you, I guess a few months ago as we were talking, that it's now people across Baltimore are picking that up as an as common nomenclature about our city. So congratulations on that, man. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? <laughs> it is. It's very gratifying <laughs> as a scholar right. to sort of create a concept. Although I didn't create White L, I think I heard that when I was uh, when I came here. But I cre I coined the term Black Butterfly, right? And so putting them together. You know, it did become something that I think people have latched on to, and that's that's very exciting. Well, the majority of white communities going down the middle to the city and going to, 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 to into the east, and then the the, the majority, many of the black communities, whether they be middle class or poor, spread around the east. Exactly. And west of the city, yeah, you could go down York Road, right, and to the west of York Road, you find you know Roland Park, Guilford, Homeland. Traveling south, you'll you know Mount Washington. Then traveling south, you'll find you know Charles Village and uh, Mount Belvedere and Mount Vernon downtown. And then when you get to the harbor, you run east along like Alice Anna and Eastern Avenue, and run that straight out east. And that's where south of that Fells Point Harbor, Harbor East, 
uh, Canton, you'll find where, you know, in this L, that's where uh, a majority of our white population are really clustered in the city. And so, yeah, that was the white L concept. And like you said, outside of that to the east and west is the black uh, community. And really, uh, that map came from Dustin Cable at the University of Virginia, their uh -huh. demographic center. Uh, and a lot of maps I don't necessarily create. I, I either annotate or, you know, I find maps, um, you know, from Ellen Worthing or uh, folks who are creating maps in the city, uh, Carol Ott, uh, Housing uh -huh. Policy Watch, uh, other people who are actually making these fantastic maps, but then I try to y pull them together so that we can see patterns that emerge, and I think it helps people see, like, what's happening at a 30,000-foot view. So let's take a little history here for a moment. Um, and um, look, I was thinking about these maps and the different pieces that I've read about on on Brace, on your Facebook page, and talk about how these fit together and what they've created. And we can talk in a bit about whether you think it's conscious, unconscious, whether that makes any difference, mm -hmm. or, you know, what the reality is here of structural racism, how it develops. From the very beginning of 1911, mm -hmm. with the housing policy, to uh, through the 30s and 40s to the video that you posted that you found mm -hmm. from 1953 mm -hmm. to the Hope Six mm -hmm. uh, under President Clinton and what that did to Baltimore. So just to start, so give us that historical connection and how they, to you, fit together as a puzzle you're piecing together. Well, you know, one really great piece of the puzzle in terms of how to find the glue is read work, work by Garrett Power. Professor Emeritus at the University of... Oh, yeah, law school. Yes, in the law school, right. I believe, at the University of Maryland. Um, and he uh, he's written several things, you know, res Apartheid Baltimore Style, this great paper that outlines how Baltimore became the first city in America to pass a racial zoning ordinance. Actually passed it December 20th, 1910, the first passage of that ordinance right before Mayor John Barry Mahul left office. And then Which he was, was 1911. And well, in right. 1910 was the first, December 20th, 1910, and it was covered by the New York Times on Christmas Day, December 25th, 1910, where they wrote an article basically saying Baltimore tries the most drastic plan of race segregation on record in the Oriole City, and so it's covered December 25th, what was passed five days before. What happens is Baltimore passes three more ordinances to try to perfect because the courts would throw out these the, the initial ordinance. So they tried again in 1911. They tried again, I believe, in 1913. They kept trying to perfect the way that this racial zoning ordinance or the racial, ordinance, racial zoning would work so they would stand in the court of law. And so, um, you know, but what I think Garrett Power talks about is that, you know, part of Baltimore apartheid which is what a language that he's used, Baltimore apartheid style is the name of that paper. I mean, apartheid Baltimore style is the name of his paper. Um, you know, I go back to Nancy Denton and Douglas Massey. They talk about American apartheid. And I go to Mindy Fullylove, who also talks about American apartheid. And Mindy Fullylove, she basically says that American apartheid is both displacement and segregation. And so when you go back and you look at, in Baltimore's history, actually Baltimore was displacing black communities as early as 1888. 
the B&O Railroad, displacing a black community near Pigtown. So you had displacement going on, then racial segregation kicking into gear in 1910. Actually, even in 1883, as early as 1883, the Roland Park Company, when it was founded, uh, just north of Baltimore City in what was then Baltimore County, Edward Boughton, the guy who ran the Roland Park Company, he was trying to restrict black people from living in those future properties that they would develop. So you see Baltimore is heavily engaged in sort of displacing and segregating, uh, trying to segregate even before that 1910 ordinance first passes. But after that, Baltimore is ground zero for American apartheid. It creates the first racial zoning ordinance. Edward Brown then becomes successful in helping craft the first racial, racially restrictive covenants, barring both Jews and African Americans from living in Roland Park, Guilford, Homeland, and later mm-hmm. Northwood communities. So you have that. Then redlining comes into play in 1937. Northwood as well, which is more of a middle-class community. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, because then right. you have right. the fight in the 40s and 50s with Morgan State students and other students from Goucher and Hopkins even that fight to integrate Northwood Plaza, uh, a theater and some shops there. So uh, Morgan, I mean, Baltimore is like sort of ground zero and it becomes a place where the issue of where black people can live is very highly contested. Uh, you, I found these, um, these what are called improvement associations or protective associations. You know, the Harlem Park Protective Association, the Madison Street Improvement Association, the Mount Royal Improvement Association. Association. And these, what are they trying to improve? What are they trying to protect? Well, they, you look at the language in the 1920s, they were afraid of the Negro invasion. L- those are literal terms, right? Those are literal terms. That's right? Churches were, white churches were talking about, man, the Negro invasion is going to like undermine the value of our church. It's going to undermine our spiritual work. <laughs> it's like, what? Really? You read this. I've read these in the Baltimore City Archives. If you go look in the papers of Howard Jackson from the year 1924, and you see, like, uh, 1923 or 24, you see, like, these basically white citizens lobbying for racial segregation because they're afraid of what's going to happen to their property values as black people migrate in droves to the city because are due to the great migration. Black folks coming out of the South, leaving the racial terror of Jim Crow and lynchings and the destruction of cities like Rosewood and Tulsa, trying to find freedom in the North. And so, you know, it's viewed as a Negro invasion. And so I, I, just a couple of weeks ago, I thought about this. I said, Negro invasion. So that meant the white community viewed this encroachment of refugees, essentially, as a state of war. Negro invasion. So that means that this racial zoning, racially restrictive covenants, redlining, these are all methods of war. These are all methods to contain, maintain, uh, push aside, keep from, you know, interacting with black people who were coming to the city of Baltimore. This was war in the minds of white citizens, many white citizens who were engaged in lobbying asking, begging Mayor Jackson, please do something to keep these Negroes from moving into, you know, our our block. And so um, Bolton Hill and 
other communities, even Lauraville uh, in 1917, they filed a suit to try to keep Morgan College at the time from moving into the place where it is today. The great left liberal progressive neighborhood of Lauraville today. Yeah, like three <laughs> married couples apparently. Right. Uh, and I'm trying to remember the name of the gentleman, uh, Stephen Ragsdale, who's writing about this. I, I think it, it should be coming out soon. There's Where's a case, uh, Diggs versus Maryland. I, th- I think he's a, Maryland, a Baltimore guy. Uh-huh. Uh, but Stephen Ragsdale, uh, look up their article. It's a case, a legal court case, Diggs versus uh, the state of Maryland, if I'm not mistaken, or Morgan versus Morgan. Uh, the Basically, they're trying to keep Morgan, this black college, from coming into uh, this white community at the time. So there's like multiple methods that are being used to contain and keep this Negro invasion from integrating Baltimore City. Wow. So, okay, see, so we go from 1920 to the 1940s and 1953 when this film was made mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to Hope Six. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, I'm sure that the people who, this video, talk about the video that you discovered from mm-hmm. 1953, um, would not connect themselves to the segregation orders of the early 1900s or to what you're describing here with the covenants mm-hmm. in Roland Park. Mm-hmm. But it's a very telling, and then comes Hope Six, and when you know the folks around Hope Six in Clinton uh, and the housing department then in Washington, D.C., would never have seen themselves connected to this. I mean, not logically speaking, right, for them. So, But, but you clearly see a connection. Well, yeah. I mean, you look at um, the, the way that... Uh, I mean, so many ways that where there is the connection. First of all, in 1937, the Housing Authority of Baltimore City is created by Mayor Howard Jackson. And so as you see, if you read Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law, a forgotten history of how America, of how the our government segregated America, he talks about in Chapter 2 how the United States Public Housing Authority, the Public Works Administration, um, and the Pentagon during the war, they all created segregated housing, segregated public housing. And so that was no different here in Baltimore. The first five public housing units were segregated by race. Uh, you have McCullough, Douglas, Latrobe, Perkins, um, and I believe one other. Uh, they were McCullough, Douglas, um, you know, those were black public housing units. Latrobe and Perkins were white public housing units. And so, you know, you have this, like, rigid hierarchy of race that's being perpetuated by the federal government on behalf and oftentimes in conjunction with the local government. And so what happens is, you know, by constant, you're essentially, well, actually, when public housing was first created, uh, you had to have a job. It was working class. It was not for the poorest of the poor. It was for folks who you had very strict guidelines but what happened was, as the suburbs were built, uh, Towson and all these other suburbs, Ricerstown and Owings Mills, and when these t- when these suburbs were built, you had highways that were being built so that people could get back and forth to work. And then you had the Federal Housing Administration that subsidized suburban housing for whites. It gave them FHA loans, Federal Housing Administration loans, and VA loans so that whites were able to buy housing uh, at very affordable rates in the suburbs when these homes were often, these loans were often denied to African Americans. So that left black people trapped 
as they're coming in from the south trapped in the city, whereas white folks are moved out to the county. So then eventually public housing becomes almost completely black as those as basically public housing becomes a reservoir for the poor. And then if you look at Thompson versus HUD, the court case uh, in the 90s and 2000s, they actually prove and show that surrounding counties were actually depositing their low income African-American population. They were sending them into Baltimore City's public housing. So Baltimore becomes a reservoir in this period of the 30s and 40s for lower income uh, black people. You have slum clearance that takes place during this time. You had to have slum clearance to build the public housing. Uh, so they were just demolishing uh, black communities to build these public housing, demolishing black communities uh, to get rid of some of the uh, more so-called blighted properties in the city. So that's the context for urban renewal then in the 50s and 60s. The, the, the blight in the 50s was actually created by the redlining that was taking place in the 30s and 40s. So the lack of investment leads to the blight. Now you need urban renewal in the 50s. And there's the film that I just posted on our page that shows it's called The Baltimore Plan. And, you know, it's like this whimsical sort of Hollywoodish production. It really was an amazing production. Well done. Very well done, I might add. Uh, uh, but it tells a story of sort of like proto-urban renewal where the city comes in and, and now they're uh, knocking down properties. And this was all authorized by the 1949 Housing Act where uh, under President Truman they passed, Congress passed and he signed this law that gave cities like 80, 75% of the funds they needed to demolish properties. And so you look and you see what was created in Baltimore was the Baltimore Urban Renewal and Housing Agency, BRHA. It was created to help facilitate all of this like urban renewal activity, help create what we know today as like the Charles Center, Charles uh, Center downtown, those tall buildings there. Um, there began to be some work done around the harbor later, but under like Mayors McKeldin um, and uh, the Alessandro II, we begin to see Alessandro, yeah, Tommy D'Alessandro, right there, yeah, the, the right, father, right, right, right. We begin to see uh, this sort of redevelopment activity downtown. Now, I was in uh, the Langsford Library at the University of Baltimore and looking at the history of urban renewal, Burha's records, and I had thought previously that urban renewal. Uh, it, I knew it impacted people, but I, I found a document that said they had, by 1964, displaced 10,000 families, 10,000 households between 1951 and 1964. To build what? Things like downtown to help expand and, the University of Maryland. And where, uh, where, and where did they go? Exactly. That's one of the questions that isn't really, I mean, um, answered in that document, where do those folks go? And we're talking about what years here? 1951 to 1964. We're here sitting talking to Dr. Lawrence Brown, who is an associate professor at the School of Public Health at Morgan State University and the founder and creator of the Facebook page Brace, the Baltimore Redevelopment Action Coalition for Empowerment. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. For the last hour, we've been talking to Dr. Lawrence Brown, 
who's an associate professor in Community Health and Policy School here at Morgan State University, uh, and a leading scholar and thinker and activist. Uh, and he also created this Facebook page, Breaks, the Baltimore Redevelopment Action Coalition for Empowerment, which I think is one of the most important discussion centers on Facebook anywhere in the country, started right here in Baltimore by Lawrence Brown. So, so, but, but, on, so, but part of the argument, I think that people who were involved in that period, which was also the founding, as it says in this documentary, in this short 20-minute documentary, which, we're gonna, which we will post along with Brace on our, uh, on our webpage, so mm-hmm. you can see the work that Lawrence is doing, um, <laughs> it, it was that, that the Citizens Planning and Housing Association was formed back then, right? right? CPHA, right. that became right. very famous in, the, in modern times. Um, but they would argue, I think, that what they were doing and through this film was a creating the first housing court in Baltimore mm-hmm. to quote unquote protect tenants, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. Uh, and to end blight and to build decent housing for poor white and black people in Baltimore. I mean, that would be. Th- right. I mean, that that's this the city's kind right. of rationale for this, but so. Right. But you're so you are you seeing something that is openly insidious about this? Are you seeing this as as the consequence of people not even thinking about it because folks were black and really didn't care? I mean, how did you how, how do you see that? Well, I think there's a lot of truth to that to the notion of getting rid of blight to uh, helping create higher standard of housing because uh, you see that being discussed. Uh, you know that these were if you look at that film, you can actually see like wooden like attic. Uh, alley dwellings, right, where people would live between the row homes, where and often African Americans were living low income, right. So, uh, these were often homes, especially if you go even further back to like the nineteen teens, nineteen twenties. These were homes without proper sanitation, and so what it would lead to, in the absence of proper sanitation and close quarters, dwellings in close quarter, you would end up with outbreaks of diseases like tuberculosis, cholera. Uh, yellow fever. So there is, uh, on some level, uh, as a public health guy, right. a rationale for right. saying right. let's improve the quality of housing so that people are living in homes with the proper codes, code enforcement, so that you have proper sanitation, so that we don't have the spread of these infectious diseases. I get that. Uh, as a matter of fact, if today, if you were to tell me we could eliminate lead in all properties and we maybe needed to displace some people to do that, I could see a rationale for that because lead poison has such a dangerous impact on the human body. But I think what was missed, and you see Burha is is co- collaborating with organizations like the Greater Baltimore Committee, the Planning Committee, um, under the leadership of, the, of people like Walter Sondheim and, and uh, James Rouse later. Right. What you see, though, is that the urban renewal is taking place with without consideration of what impact it's having on black communities. And I think that's the thing that was often missed. Again, American apartheid is not just racial segregation, it's forced displacement. It's root shock, it's moving people without their will. And you're talking about on the order of 10,000 households. And these households back then, the Burha estimates that resulted in 25,000 people, I think that's a severe underestimate. You know, households then, especially like the black community. like 2.5 people per house, exactly, right? Exactly. Right, like, right, right. No, black community, <laughs> like even today, you is probably on the average of four people in the household. And back then, it would have been like seven or eight. So I think there was like 
40 or 50,000 black people removed. And this was at a time when Baltimore, they were the majority of the people displaced, not just the majority, the super majority of the people displaced, at a time when Baltimore was still predominantly white. So the, the inequity in terms of who was being displaced is where you see that black communities didn't matter. And I think that's what I boil it down to. Black neighborhoods matter. Black communities matter. And with the displacement we've seen in Baltimore City, black communities are torn up over and over and over again. And that's what urban renewal was. They infamously called it Negro Negro removal. removal. Right. (laughs) I think that saying actually came out of New York, but that's that's where that is what people always said. Right. Right. And so this is what was happening leading up to the 68 Holy Week uprising after Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Uh, You know, today, as a matter of fact, July 12th, is the 50th anniversary of the Newark insurrection, the uprising that took place in Newark that lasted five days, July 12th through July 17th. Later this month, we're going to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Detroit Rebellion, right? which took place also in 1967. And so when we're talking about this displacement, urban renewal between 51 and 64, this is all leading up to the Holy Week uprising. As a matter of fact, these riots are taking place in urban areas in the 60s because communities are being torn apart. Free raids are being built through black communities. Urban renewal is at a high pace. So black people and black communities are being pushed and torn and stripped and constructed over and demolished over and over all across the nation. They're being torn apart. They're being uh, thrashed and bandied about. Um, Watts explodes in 65, Harlem in 64. Uh, Newark and Detroit, as I said, 67. Uh, Cleveland, 66. These cities are exploding, and Baltimore and the whole host would join in 68 after the assassination of Dr. King. But these cities are exploding because it's like Grandmaster Flash says, don't push me because I'm close to the edge. People are <laughs> on the edge. Right, right, You know, right, right. you got that notice, eviction. You got to move. You don't have no choice, and you don't have no say, you know. And, and entire communities of people being uprooted. And that's the thing that I think that wasn't really looked at. What's the impact of root shock? What's the impact of forcing people to move after they had already been forced to move from the South to come North? Because of racial terror, 4,000 lynchings between 1877 and 1950 in 12 Southern states, as according to the Equal Justice Initiative, they're reporting so black people are fleeing. They, first of all, if you go back, you know, there's the displacement from Africa to America. Almost 400,000 Africans displaced, kidnapped, you know, snatched up, brought to America. Then you had the interstate American slave trade, which Frederick Douglass talks about in his What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. He talks about people being put on boats in Baltimore and shipped down south when cotton takes over. So you have that right. interstate displacement. Then you have, after the Civil War, reconstructions taking place, but there's also lots of violence, massacres in New Orleans and in Memphis. People flee. Black people left Memphis. Ida B. Wells talks about it in 1893 that black people can find no justice. Uh, one of the people that were lynched and brought her to her activism, you know, so black people left Memphis by on the order of 6,000 people, 6,000 black. They went to Kansas. They went to Nebraska. Left. So the history of black people in America is one where try to build a community and then we get forced 
to leave. And so then that's the great migration. Black people are forced to leave. They come to the North. What do they find? Urban renewal, slum clearance, segregation. And so they're forced to move all over again. And these communities are tremendously fragile. People are still somehow able to build these villages and communities, but then we reach a breaking point in the 1980s when you have gang violence, where you have crack cocaine, the rise of HIV, and there's a breaking point, I believe, there where uh, the fragility of black communities really comes to the fore. And the vulnerability, then you begin to see like the rise of hyper-criminal activities, gang violence, and the high murder rates we see going into the 90s. Uh, a lot of this is caused by what's happening in the 50s and 60s, the lack of investment, the urban renewal, the displacement, the highway construction, black neighborhoods did not matter. So there's something, juxtaposition here of, of one another event to throw in and just see what you think. It's not mm-hmm. something you've actually, I've seen embrace, but mm-hmm. I'm just curious to see what you think. Mm-hmm. So here we have the movement from 1954 to the mid-60s in civil rights to break right. the back of legal segregation in right. America, right? Right, right. And obviously, the Supreme Court's decision in 1954, Brown v. Board, was one of the linchpins in that mm-hmm. battle, mm-hmm. legally speaking. Mm-hmm. And you had Montgomery, Montgomery bus boycott, and right. Selma, Alabama, right. And, right. and Birmingham, and the Children's Crusade, and everything mm-hmm. else that happened mm-hmm. um, around. But at the same time, that's when you had these laws, open housing laws were passed mm-hmm. that forced the legal end, the legal end, mm-hmm. to segregation. So we have... Schools that were integrated, let's say, in Baltimore, at least a number of schools were integrated in Baltimore after a great battle, some vicious racist battles like coming out of South Baltimore, mm-hmm. places like that, mm-hmm. um, um, and in Hamden, different places in the city. But you had, for a while, a number of schools that were actually interracial. Mm-hmm. City, mm-hmm. Poly, Western, mm-hmm. Forest Park, a bunch mm-hmm. of East, Eastern high schools, Patterson, different places that became more, more racially integrated. And you had the three historically black schools. Um, in Baltimore City, high schools, Carver, Dunbar, Douglas. But anyway, but open housing meant that black folks of means who had jobs, Mm -hmm. either because of the building building of the steel industry and auto or because of the the positive effects that took place, that weren't all positive, positive effects of LBJ's war on poverty, Mm -hmm. allowing this black middle class to, 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 to grow a bit more, moved to Town, to up Liberty Road, into Baltimore County, especially, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so and so that left this pocket of people inside of Baltimore with nothing. Right, right, right. So I mean, that, that's also a dynamic in this, right? It is. Isn't it? Um, I mean, I think the, the foremost element in that is the white resistance to desegregation. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Part of that resistance is simply saying, we're out of here. We're leaving the city. You know, we're we're moving to the county. <laughs> I have to save my child and my family. I'm yeah, gone. We're right. not sending them to school with these black students. So, you know, they, you see, if you look at Baltimore's population, begins to decline in 1950. Well, what happens in 1950? Well, the black population doesn't decline. It's the white population that's declining. The Great Migration is still going on, hot and popping, so black right. people still coming to the city. Right. But the white population like, you know, while the black population is like, yes, we can, the white population is like, no, you can't. <laughs> you know, we getting up out of here. So they begin to leave the city in droves. And 54, Brown versus Board. So now, also again, Walter Sondheim, who's the president of the Baltimore uh, public school system at the time, you know, enacts a plan of desegregation. 
But if you read Learning in a Burning House by Sonia Horsford Douglas, or Sonia Douglas Horford, excuse me, she writes that, you know, desegregation is not the same thing as integration. And I think that's part of what you're saying is that for a time there was a mixing of the bodies, but then we see many of our schools become resegregated, not just in Baltimore, according to, I think, uh, work done by folks at UCLA, you know, Maryland has the third highest level of racial segregation in this public school system. Uh, other schools in the Deep South begin to, and across the nation, New York even is uh, among the ones that has high levels of school segregation. You know, but the courts release these schools from court supervision of the school districts so that they begin to resegregate. After 89, you begin to see more and more school systems become majority black or majority white again. And I, that's because integration never really happened. There was an attempt at desegregation, but desegregation was foiled by the resistance of whites either moving out or creating what we begin to see, school choice, charter schools, these mechanisms to sort of create exclusivity where you could have a wealthier, whiter population, whereas the the black population that was lower income is left as you're saying, in these um, disinvested red line black communities. Now, the black middle class, which begins to rise after LBJ, you know, maybe 10% of black community in America begins to earn maybe six figures. And so they become wealthy. They want to do the same thing that, that white folks want to do. They want to pick a fence. They want to be able to have a dog and 2.5 kids <laughs> in the suburbs. So they move. I don't consider that flight the same way I, I call it exodus you know folks wanting to leave the city get their peace because the motivation was different well a, for one right and and also you know uh the suburbs were tremendously uh in many ways often sundown towns right so that if anything these middle class black folks were integrating these closed off areas so they were in many ways pioneers trying to attain the american dream but as a side effect of that, you do see, like you say, the lower income folks almost left to fend for themselves. But even in those county areas mm-hmm. that were the sundown towns, right. they went from white to racially mixed to all black. Right. Because it's, the same flight took place even in Baltimore County and right. everywhere else. Especially right? the wings. If you look at the, the butterfly, wings. the wings of the butterfly that go out into the county. So right. Owings Mills, Ricerstown. Like going out, like you said, along Liberty Road. Yeah. And then a little bit like. Town Road, right. You know, going right. uh, east, you know, like Dundalk, Perry Hall, out there. But like northern Baltimore County <laughs> is almost, you know, it's still very much a white yes. enclave. Of, right. Well, it's not an enclave, it's white dominated. You right. Know, and they actually, we were tr- fighting for the Home Act last year uh, in the Baltimore County. It was rejected 6 1. Uh, only Julian Jones, the Second or third, you know, was the, the black city, uh, black, black county council lone non white right, council person. He was the in only Baltimore one, the lone right. in a county <laughs> that is almost 40% non white. Yes, if I have my stats right, there's only one non white right. councilman in the whole right. council. I mean, talking late, not Latino, right. not black, not, nobody, yep. just nothing. Yep, and and they were shot it down, and and it was disheartening to see. It's like, wow, 2016, here we are. The Home Act, which is designed to allow uh, to make sure that landlords can't reject people who have housing choice vouchers out of hand, housing choice vouchers, formerly known as Section 8 vouchers. And so 
what happened, what has happened in many ways is that public housing, Section 8, folks with those vouchers, uh, the in the popular imagination and in somewhat in reality, uh, most of those residents are black. So then the voucher becomes a code for blackness. And so that's when you hear people say, we don't want those people, those Section 8 people living in our community. And that's the type of racial discrimination is coded. You know, we don't want those people living near us. And that's still playing out in Baltimore County to this very day. And I might add, in Baltimore City, too, we don't have a home act here either. So I think that helps perpetuate the white and the black butterfly. It helps perpetuate racial hypersegregation in Baltimore City because the landlords and the YL don't have to interview those folks with vouchers either. So we need the Home Act across the state of Maryland. I was reduced to tears uh, the uh, earlier this year in March when the Home Act was being debated in the House of Delegates. and You were there, obviously. Well, I was listening on the stream, live okay, stream, gotcha. uh-huh. online. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, uh, well, that's why you can do that. I forgot. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it passed. It passed the House of Delegates. And I, I was just like, wow, this is tremendous because I remembered the fight from last year where it failed in the summer. And so here we were in, in March of this year. It passed the House, but they didn't even take it up in the Senate. So we still don't have it. But it was great to see, like, some momentum. Like, maybe we, if we had the House this year, maybe we can get the Senate in the next couple of years. I don't know. But, you know, we're still fighting this battle for complete, for real desegregation, for real racial integration. But until then, hypersegregation is very much still a fact of American life and here in the city of Baltimore. And we've yet to reconcile ourselves with the implications of that. So let's go back to history for a moment. Let's go back to just kind of a more modern, the more, more recent history, mm-hmm. I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the history of the last um, 20-some years. Right. Uh, and Bill Clinton becomes president of the United States, mm-hmm. um, the first black president. <laughs> Lord, we're not gonna have that conversation. <laughs> I had to say that. But <laughs> we're not gonna have that conversation. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Oh, I couldn't man. resist. Sorry, but so. Um, <laughs> well, let me, I mean, Bill Clinton. He becomes president. <laughs> right. Passes welfare reform. Passes Hope Six. Passes the 1994 Omnibus Crime Bill. I mean, if right. anything, these are all measures and policies that help decimate and undermine black America uh, for the next 20 years. So this, so this is really important, the connections you just made, mm-hmm. right? And this becomes the quote-unquote enlightened policy of the new democratic people, yes, organization, absolutely. right? Right. Um, and, that, 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 and, and there's even... A lot of black leadership mm-hmm. in support of it. It was in vogue. Right, it was in vogue. Yep. Right? Yep. So take us there. I mean, mm-hmm. I know you weren't there then. Mm-hmm. I was there then. Right. And I remember it really well. And I remember we were at the beginning of our radio show in 1993. And we covered this pretty intensely at that time. Right. And what it meant. Right. And I'd really like to go back and pull out some of the old shows you did to show how, and I don't mean this as like an ego thing, but I'm just mm-hmm. reality, but how prescient some of the conversations we were having mm-hmm. were about what these policies would do, mm-hmm. right? And the combination of these three policies, mm-hmm. tearing down public housing, right. which right. we did with gusto here in Baltimore, yep. street strikes without putting people in jail, mass incarceration, mm-hmm. welfare um, reform, and welfare reform, throwing people, off. poor people off of Five welfare years. without any... Right. Uh, underpinning without any kind of job creation or job training. Right, right. Anything. 
Right. So go go ahead. Um. So again, you know, black neighborhoods don't matter. Uh, black public housing especially doesn't matter. So under Hope Six, a quarter million public housing units are demolished across the country. Across the country. Uh, in Baltimore, that was more reflected in the, the demolition of four the, the high rises. large high rises, right? right? Uh, which, in some ways, I don't think it is a complete negative. I mean, those high rises were a mistake to begin with. You, they basically warehouse people into like these very small areas, and that's nothing but creating uh, places where and you had. If you watch this David Simon uh, production, "Show Me a Hero." Uh, this public housing debate is is laid out wonderfully, I believe, in that series. And it talks about how you create these common spaces where no nobody feels like they have responsibility for, you know, keeping certain things clean or, you know, so you end up seeing stuff dumped. You end up seeing uh, crime taking place in the staircase and things of that nature because there are these common areas where nobody really has any jurisdiction. So, you know, you create like a, a chromogenic environment by stacking human beings into these high rises. And obviously it's much better, we know now, to do low rises, spread, scattered site, you know, and to really uh, make sure you have mixed income as much as you can. You, it's a bad idea to just try to concentrate poverty, which is essentially what public housing end up doing in America. So Clinton then, you know, comes along. I, I don't know that social science... You know, it sounds like you're saying activists had a, a, a good sense that these things weren't a good idea. A lot of activists did. A lot of activists did. But I don't know that the uh, – I'm a social scientist. I don't – I mean, you know, we have now, you know, people looking at the color of law. We have the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. I mean, some of this stuff is before the sort of incisive analyses that we have now that was able to look back at the impact of those policies from a very scholarly perspective. But – Clearly, in my mind, uh, you know, Clinton is partnering, triangulating with the Republicans in Congress, the Newt Gingrich, and they're they're trying to, you know, make a deal. And in doing so, you know, lower income black folks are have less protections in terms of welfare and uh, food assistance and things of that nature for mothers and children. They had less housing because of Hope Six, the demolition of public housing. Um they're given these Section 8 vouchers at the time. Now they're called Housing Choice Vouchers. Put out into the private market, oftentimes back in low-income, disinvested, red-line black communities because they weren't being – these vouchers aren't accepted in predominantly white communities and in wealthier communities. So they weren't ending up in areas of opportunity. You know, it's just basically – they didn't solve poverty. This just basically pushed poverty somewhere else, out of sight, out of mind. And so, you know – but the crime piece is probably the one I'm most sympathetic for simply because violence was at a crazy high in the 90s. Uh, gang violence, you know, all of the records for violence were in the 90s. Now we've come to realize this correlation between lead poison and, and crime in the 90s. Lead poison being taken out of gasoline in the 70s and then the decline in crime in the late 90s. There's like a 20, 21-year time lag where when gas was, when lead poison, lead was in gasoline, leaded gas, 
you know, then you had high crime 20 years later with the kids who had oh, so poison. I mean, it was a lead paint in people's homes where people were eating. Exactly. Where, where babies were sucking on when they were teething. Right. But we can right? see, but with, but with lead and gasoline, we can actually see that as the gasoline, lead and gasoline went up in the late 60s and 70s, crime went up 20 years later. And as gas was, as lead was being taken out of gasoline in 78, in 98, in 99, you begin to see this dip in crime. So we're starting to understand more about the science of crime and criminology, things of that nature. I don't know if that was seen as clearly in 93, 94. By some it was. Well, the clearly racist part was right. you saw people like Hillary Clinton and another an academic who actually coined the term super predator. Uh, John DeLulio, if I'm not mistaken, like they so there's this language of, you know, these like hopped up on crack can't be remediated uh, juvenile, essentially animals that needed to be put down. So you have Hillary Clinton that's using a language to help justify you have Bill Clinton that's using language. Bernie Sanders voted for it, too. Um, but like you said, it's Democratic policy that basically Democrats voted for the crime bill, but the incarceration piece is the thing that I think uh, was particularly egregious. It helped uh, increase the level of what was already increasing, but it helped continue that incline of mass incarceration in America. Um, you know, the building of more prisons, uh, three strikes you're out, which means, you know, now you have more people to put in prison because they only get three chances now. So, so the way that it all worked together then, like, really helped intensify apartheid in America. Um, and I don't think that was really seen uh, by in the way that it's seen now. I think folks on the ground saw it, but not as many scholars saw it, not as many social scientists saw it. No, I think you're right. They may did not see it. I mean, right. I think I think that that the arguments are being made that, that that to incarcerate our way out of this problem would cause greater problems. We're seeing, I think, I would say, by I saw it. I thought a lot of people who had a certain political consciousness saw it. Mm-hmm. Community activists saw it mm-hmm. that this was going to be a disaster. Right. 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 And right. We, we didn't know the effect. We, we couldn't predict the effect it has now in 2017. Mm-hmm. But we knew it was going to have a detrimental effect on the poorest communities and black, right. and in Baltimore especially in the black community. Right. What it would mean. Right. 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 And right. so, because um, we talked about one of the things we talked about back then was what happened in the street was that uh, it allowed prison culture to mimic itself as black culture and mm-hmm. take over. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that became this popular medium that you could sell music to and sell right. everything else to. Right. 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 And and in, and so it was a we we. we we saw that thing exploding, but you really didn't know how deep it was going to get. Gonna you play. saw the high rises coming down in Baltimore, right? But we knew then, when they were tearing down the high rises, mm-hmm. that they were not doing anything to ensure the housing for the people who lived in those high rises. Right. So they ended up living in these completely blighted neighborhoods. Right. That destroyed people even further. Yeah. Cause right. Now they're being this out of the high rises into lead infested, lead ridden. Homes in East and West Baltimore, right? Because we hadn't gotten rid of lead poison in our housing stock, so people are desperate for housing because of displacement. They've been pushed out of public housing into these housing units that's lead-ridden in, in communities that aren't being supported by the city. That didn't get uh, some of the smaller tiffs at the time, tax increment financing. 
didn't get some of the same public investments, didn't get some of the same private bank investments. Redlining is still taking place. And so black neighborhoods, which didn't matter in the 70s and 80s, you know, still didn't matter in the 90s and 2000s when we begin to see, you know, the rise of subprime lending in black neighborhoods led by banks like Wells Fargo and others that begin to proliferate these loans and hand out uh, mortgages with like these adjustable rate interests to black and Latino communities. And so now, you know, you got in, in a rising economy that happens with, under Clinton, uh, people think, oh, I got an $800 a month mortgage. When it goes up to $1,200 a month, I'll be able to afford it. But then, of course, as we know throughout black history, we're the last hired and first fired. So, <laughs> you know, down the line in 2008, when that bubble crashes, People are losing their jobs. People aren't able to afford those that bump when that adjustable rate in that mortgage hits. And when it goes from 800 to 1200 can't afford it, now the foreclosure rate begins to kick into high gear. So you have mass foreclosures, uh, mass rental evictions. Baltimore leads the nation in rental evictions per capita. The Baltimore Suns just did a great story on that called Dismissed, uh, cataloging how uh, you know, renters are being treated in court, the lack of representation, uh, the way that judges favor landlords tremendously. So, again, you have a situation you had 99 EBDI is announced, um, and, and then you begin to see these mega TIFs. So, let's do this. So, we're here, here, sitting, to doctor, we're here sitting talking to Dr. Lawrence Brown, who is an associate professor at the School of Public Health at Morgan State University and the founder and creator of the Facebook page Brace, the Baltimore Redevelopment Action Coalition for Empowerment. We've been talking about history. Stay with us. When we come back after this short news break, we're going to focus in on what all this means for now and where we are today. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. For the last hour, we've been talking to Dr. Lawrence Brown, who's an associate professor in Community Health and Policy School here at Morgan State University uh, and a leading scholar and thinker and activist. Uh, and he also created this Facebook page, Breaks, the Baltimore Redevelopment Action Coalition for Empowerment, which I think is one of the most important discussion centers on Facebook, anywhere in the country, started right here in Baltimore by Lawrence Brown. Or as he goes by, uh, or as his nom de guerre on uh, Facebook, Lawrence Fred Hampton Du Bois. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I tried to make it too easy for my students to find me, but. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, this is out, you man. The secret's out. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's cool. So, uh, <laughs> so we spent the last hour talking about the history of how we got here, but let's talk about these last, this century, yes. and where we are, and where we are now, which is really part of the reason you decided, founded Brace, not just to discuss history, but to discuss what this means for this moment, and, and what we learn from this history, and where this should take us if we understand what the, where the history has brought us to. Right. Right? Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons that you hear me talk about black neighborhoods so much is because it's the village where it's where the village is, where the village, if the village survived, the village survived slavery, the village survived Jim Crow, it's only in the 80s where we begin to see sort of the breakdown mm -hmm. of the village, you know, and you can hear the village when you hear elders talk about 
when I was growing up, you know, everybody went up and got to work. Uh, people looked out for each other. People disciplined each other kids. You got a whooping at one house and then uh, at another house, and then when you made it home, you got a third whooping. The village was, that was the village. The people looked out for each other. They lent, uh, you know, you could lend sugar to your neighbor, and it wasn't perfect. I mean, it was obviously right. in a segregated reality, but there was a construct that held the community together. And that's, I think, the sense of what's being lost with the pseudo desegregation that we've experienced. We haven't experienced integration. We've never experienced that. But we've had a black exodus of the middle uh, class out of the city in many ways. And so our lower income black community has been left behind. And now we have this mega development. We have more displacement. And as a result, the white L has structured advantage in Baltimore and the black butterfly has structured disadvantage. And that plays out in terms of what we're seeing now, the, the spike in homicides that we're experiencing. Uh, nearly a murder a day. We, we may probably may end up topping 360 this That's year, horrible. Horrible. Uh, which I think would break Baltimore's record with a much higher population. Right. We're also, as bad as the homicides are, if we break 360, we made 360, 370. Last year we had 694 deaths for opioid overdoses. In the city. In the city of Baltimore. And that was just after having 393 the year prior, 2015. So we're in. More than twice. It was damn near doubled. Exactly. And so this is what we're talking about. We're in a moment of escalating death and destruction in our city. And many of these deaths, many of these homicides, many of these opioid overdoses happening in the Black Butterfly, why are they happening there? Because the village is not there anymore. At least the village of old is not there anymore. People are still resilient. People are still fighting. But that sense of the village that we used to have, that's been decimated by years and decades of redlining, of tearing black communities apart, the highway to nowhere, EBDI, urban renewal. All these things fractured the village. And now uh, in the face of mega development along the waterfront, mega development in the white L, the dearth of development in the black butterfly. You know, we're building a new mini city in Port Covington, $660 million. But then we look at Sandtown and we say, well, why was it a failure when the Enterprise Foundation, James Rouse and Kurt Schmoke, when they spent maybe $125 million to redevelop Sandtown in the 90s mm -hmm. and 2000s? or late 80s, then the 90s, and uh, early 2000s. Why, why did that fail? Well, if it, took six, if it takes $660 million to build a new city in Port Covington, then maybe $125 million wasn't enough in Sandtown. It was a good down payment, but that's not nearly enough. You know, you look at how we've spent hundreds of million dollars on the stadiums. We've spent, you know, Camden Yards on M&T Bank Stadium. On for for these sports teams, we've spent uh, billions of dollars on redeveloping the harbor with um, then Mayor um, Donald Schaefer. Donald Schaefer, right. right? So we've redeveloped and we've bolstered the harbor. We hundred seven million dollar tiff for Michael Beatty and his properties at Harbor East. Harbor East, right. You know, the, now the Pataraki's family and Michael Beatty. Right, exactly. Right, right. Now you have the $660 million mega tiff 
massive tiff at Port Covington. So we're building up the YL. We just haven't done the same thing for the Black Butterfly. Therefore, it's no surprise, I believe, to see this boom in death and destruction in many of our disinvested red line black communities. So what do you think that takes us? So, so I, I was in a town meeting the other night uh, at, in Forest Park mm-hmm. um, at my old elementary school, School 64, as a matter of fact, that Kim Chu Hart put on. Um, and it was interesting in the what people were found out that there weren't, like in Howard Park, which is a, a, now a black middle class neighborhood, it used to be a, a, a Jewish middle class mm-hmm. neighborhood. Um, they thought there were like 18 abandoned houses. They found over 200. Mm-hmm in their community when mm-hmm. they did their own survey and research mm-hmm. and gave it to the city, right? And then you, a lot of the residents there, when they talked about, the, one police officer there says, well, I grew up in Sandtown, mm-hmm. and that's I become, I want to be a, pl- a community police officer, and that's mm-hmm. why I'm here talking to people and being in people's homes. I believe in that. And I believe he was telling the truth, mm-hmm. too. He was serious, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He says, I grew up in Sandtown. Mm-hmm. And then when he said that, a number of hands went up inside the meeting of all the people who now live in Forest Park who grew up in Sandtown. Right, 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 right. Right? Because right. we wanted to get to what is this semi-urban, suburban mm-hmm. neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And then when I walked outside, I was walking Abdul Salam. We walked out together in Abdul Salam, and we're coming up, we're walking up uh, the, the street by the school. We looked over and saw this gigantic abandoned building. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing's in there, mm-hmm. right on the corner of Liberty Heights and Garrison. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at the house going, I said, can you imagine what would happen if Instead of building a new office at State Center, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that you took a state office building and put it right there mm-hmm. in that community mm-hmm. so that white and black and Asian everybody mm-hmm. workers, mm-hmm. Latino mm-hmm. workers, had to come work in that office building right. in this black neighborhood right. that could create new businesses, hire mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Be- begin to think how we redevelop our city in a different way and not just kind of putting everything, lumping everything in the white L. Right. I mean, that's the kind of stuff. I mean, right. when I read your. When mm-hmm. I read your Facebook page, mm-hmm. Grace, I start thinking about those things because mm-hmm. we've got to have a different way of doing this. We can't mm-hmm. keep doing the same thing over and over again, mm-hmm. creating the pain, destruction, isolation mm-hmm. that we've created for the last 150 years. Absolutely. You know, we, we did one retail commercial tiff in the Black Butterfly, and that was at Mondawmin Mall. Right. $15 million right. in 2008, and that's a thriving, bustling uh, and we can't even put a bike share there. No. And we can't even put a bike share there. <laughs> and that's the thing. It's a hub. <laughs> it's a hub of life and commercial activity and transit activity. But we don't have the the, inno- the innovative mindset to figure out how do we connect our black butterfly neighborhoods with our white L community so that they can share. You know, you look at, like you mentioned, the way that our transit uh, is clustered, Zipcar and Charm City Circulator, which is free. Uh, you know, bike share, bike protected bike lanes. You know, these amenities are clustered in the White L, where people can get to work a higher percentage of, than any other place in the city can get to work in less than 15 minutes. But in the Black Butterfly, you have a lot of people that don't have vehicles. It takes over 45 minutes to get to work. You look at uh, people like Samuel Jordan at the Baltimore Transit Equity Coalition. They call this transit detention, where you take more than 45 minutes to get to work. So it's no surprise when you got people living in a food desert, bank desert, and a transit desert, which is what we have in many communities in the Black Butterfly, a desert of resource and opportunity. It's no surprise to see the crime. It's no surprise to see the opioid overdoses. I like to say apartheid policies breed social pathologies. And that's what we're seeing in Baltimore. Where, and people are scrambling, well, how do we apartheid deal with the crime? policies? Breed social, social pathologies. pathologies. That's really that's almost as important as the white elephant black butterfly. It is. It's the underpinning <laughs> behind right, right, it. It's, right, it's right. the it's the guiding thinking that says 
apartheid is still with us. That the entire history of what we've been talking about in our conversation, it was done to us. It was done to black neighbors. It was done to black people. Hence, if it was done to us, we can undo it. We can pass policies. We can enact practices that can help undo the damage that has been done if we're intentional about it. And so I like to think, I think about, you know, Baltimore racial equity TIF or social impact bonds, $2 billion, where we could spend a billion dollars on completely wiping out lead poison in Baltimore City once and for all as a threat to our babies. And let's use the other million for violence prevention for safe streets. Let's use it for opioid overdose prevention. Uh, let's use it for making sure that there's real development in these communities, for keeping schools open in black communities so they can function as community hubs, uh, spaces for NGOs and nonprofits and grassroots activity in communities to function and flourish. Um, you know, that's a down payment on taking the investment we've been giving to the waterfront and to the YL and saying, let's invest in the black butterfly. Let's take let's take the two billion we've given to the harbor. Let's do that same two billion for the black butterfly, so that these communities can begin to f- thrive and flourish. I think there's also other solutions. I look at let's you know redlining is an issue, so we got to green line those redlined black communities. Which means what? Making sure banks are there lending fairly, that they're there engaging in their community reinvestment activity, which is mandated by the 1977 Community Reinvestment Act passed under Jimmy Carter, anti-redlining provision. But at the same time that these banks are lending, I want Wells Fargo, PNC, M&T, I want these banks to come into our communities and to begin to lend, but lend fairly. That's what I want. And there's a debt that they owe, which is the community reinvestment. So I want them to come in and begin to fund worker co-ops, housing co-ops, collective, cooperative enterprises in black communities so that people can begin to build and and grow wealth um, and not just have this level of poverty that we have in these communities. So, and I think, you know, you could have this combination of ending this redlining, which is greenlining in black communities. And then I think most of all, longer term, we need Baltimore neighborhood reparations, which would, let's take 10% of our budget. Right now we have a $2.6 billion budget or so. So that's $260 million. Let's divide that in among the top 15 or 20 disinvested red line black communities and for the next 40 50 years use that formula split the money use democratically elected neighborhood councils uh to determine for each community statistical area or neighborhood how they're going to spend that money and the, so that the community is deciding here's what we need here's what we need and here's where the money needs to go you know we're going to need this college tuition fund we're going to put more money into our school we're going to fix up the housing let the community decide that because the, the one of the biggest things apartheid does is keep people from exercising governance in their communities. Instead of having the government say, here's what we want to do, now people are empowered to say, here's what we want to do in our neighborhood. And eventually what I think what you'll see is you begin to see real integration because as black neighborhoods are built up, white folks and anybody else will want to move in. And the same thing, if we allow people with housing choice vouchers, lower income folks to live in the white L, like with the Home Act, then we'll have more integration that way. So I think we can desegregate Baltimore if we begin to think about the types of solutions that I'm suggesting 
to help undo the apartheid that we've been actively building on for the past hundred or so years. So how do you imagine that this radical reformation of our thinking and actual practice takes place? I mean, the reality is that majority white, but not completely white, um, group of people in, in Baltimore control most of the assets, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, um, we've seen the debate over the $15 an hour. Right. Right. Um, minimum wage in the city. Right. And, and I don't want to get into that now, but I mean, because there's a whole debate to be had over can a city do it by itself? Is it economically disadvantaged mm -hmm. city? But I mean, we can have that debate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we need to have a $15 an hour minimum wage mm -hmm. in Baltimore, but we can have that debate honestly, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, but how do you begin to have this discussion so you, so you begin to change the way we perceive how we develop? You know, I mean, part of it's political activism, mm -hmm. you know, and pushing the agenda, mm -hmm. electing people who will... will see that as the way to change. Right. But we really got to do something kind of the transformative to make this city work. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, we can't think about development the same way we've been doing. We have to change it drastically. Right. Well, I think one of the great things that you do as organizer is, you know, popular education. And like we, we were talking about, you know, media and, you know, how do we create narratives and push you know, videos and, and podcasts? How do we create? That's what I try to do with Brace. Brace is essentially saying, how do we create an alternative development narrative? And, you know, by and we shift the frame. You know, saying Black Butterfly and White L shifts the frame because it calls reality into, it, it speaks into reality, the fact that there isn't one Baltimore. It actually shows us that there's multiple Baltimores. Um, you know, our Latino population is clustered around uh, Patterson Park. Our Asian population is pretty much clustered around Johns Hopkins and the city of the city, Homewood campus, and running down that uh, the spine of the YL. So we're a fractured city uh, all the way around, and we have a small Native American community here as well. But we're a fractured city. We're a segregated, hyper-segregated city. So I think starting with that as the premise, I think that's where we can figure out, begin to have discussions about how do we actually, how do we actually pursue development that works for everybody? And I think, hopefully, that's what the discussion on Brace spurs people into thinking about. And hopefully the work that we'll continue to do in the future will actually speak to that as well. But I would like to say, Delta, please. when you have, please. We, we have a black political leadership in Baltimore City right. that goes along to get along, that, that maintains the status quo. We have a black political class in Baltimore that maintains Baltimore apartheid. And so I think increasingly one of the savviness, one of the savvy things about white supremacy is the way in which it takes black political leaders and uses them to continue the same sort of apartheid and forms of structural oppression that existed before. Like Malcolm X said, you know, ra racism comes out with new Cadillac every year. So it's like it looks slightly different. It's not the old Jim Crow, but it is the new Jim Crow to use black folks to keep the same type of policies going that benefit the white L and that hurt the black butterfly. So I think we've got to call attention to like how that dynamic operates. We, I think we've got to figure out a way that just because somebody's black don't mean that they have a black community's interest at heart. Um, and that increasingly we've got to build a multiracial coalition 
against racism that will fight the multiracial coalition that's perpetuating racism. For, and for economic <laughs> democracy. <laughs> exactly. Right? But I think you see now in, city, in the city, this last election, we've elected some interesting, I don't, who knows what the future brings with people, but we've, we've elected some interesting mm-hmm. younger mm-hmm. representatives. Mm-hmm. Shannon Seed. Mm-hmm. Um, Christopher Burnett. Christopher, I was about to say Christopher Burnett. Ryan Dorsey. Pinkett, Ryan Dorsey. Mm-hmm. Zeke Cohen, right. Shannon, did I say Shannon Sneed? Yes. Shannon, right? John Bullock. John Bullock. Mm-hmm. I can leave out John. He was mm-hmm. been a guest on the show for yes, years before he became a city council person, mm-hmm. um, as many of those people had. And so, um, I mean, that to me is part of what you can see that building. It's also building from the ground forces, groups like Community United. Right, right, um, right, right. That are doing amazing work in public housing projects. Absolutely right. The housing allowance. Housing allowance. allowance. Mm-hmm. No Boundaries Coalition on right. the west side. Baltimore um, Transit Equity Coalition, right? We mentioned earlier, um, Baltimore Black Worker Center, um, which is talking about getting the, off the ground. You're talking about, which talks about the cooperatives you were talking about earlier. Yeah, I mean, right? and black labor generally, right? Uh, that we want to see boost the prospects for black labor in Baltimore. I mean, we talk about fifteen dollars an hour. We don't talk about the fact that the black median in well, the white median income in Baltimore is sixty thousand dollars, but the black median annual household income is $33,000. So that disparity is nearly right. two to one. Uh, black households on at the median make half of what white households do. So their racial inequity in terms of income speaks to the need for the $15 per hour minimum wage. And I don't think that was brought up enough in the fight before, the need that, that how that would help with racial equity in terms of how much people get paid. So, again, you know, we have a black mayor that, that vetoed that. We have... Who said she was going to vote for it when she ran for mayor. Right. Promised. You know, I wanted to send her a Bible, you know. So, <laughs> it's like, do I need to send you a Bible to make sure whatever you say I can trust in the future? But, you know, there are, I have people who say she's she's uh, getting her feet wet. She's going to improve. I'm hoping and holding out hope for that. But at the same time, um, I think we need to be mobilized. I think we need to be activated to hold our political officials accountable. Ultimately, they work for us. You know, We pay the bills, they're our boss. I mean, we're their boss. And I think we have to figure out a way, um, it, you know, how do we sit in, shut down? How do we disrupt You know, this, this way that things are going? Because people are dying, you know. We had a thousand people die last year due to violence, whether it was externally applied in terms of homicides or inflicted internally in terms of overdoses. So, and we're going to pass a thousand again, I believe, this year because we haven't stemmed the tide. We haven't turned, you know, the 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 tide in the opposite direction. So how do we do do this? It's going to take a real civic effort, a real mobilization, a real push. Um, you know, although you know, I, with the uprising of a couple of years ago, you know, I I I, I sense and I've been through. You know, people are tired mm-hmm. as well. People are kind of drained and worn out. People have hit the wall because everybody kind of went into overdrive after the uprising. Everybody kind of went into, like, how do we save our city? And many of us have either burned out or hit a wall and had to take a break and step back and rethink, you know, how we're doing. So where we find this civic energy to do all of this, I think, is a, is a great question, um, especially when you have the austerity of the Trump administration staring us in the face. If those budget cuts come from the Trump administration, everything we're seeing now is going to be a lot worse. I mean, the cuts to HUD alone, to housing, to vouchers for the aid for the homeless, uh, 
assistance for folks who are lower income. You know, when if that gets through, you know, then you get Medicaid, the, the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, you know, people losing insurance. You know, these things mean more death, more mayhem, more crime. So I think, you know, we have to find the resolve and energy somewhere locally and nationally to push back against the sort of neoliberal agenda, the, the austerity agenda that's staring us in our face. You know, and I think that, 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 that I'm really happy you're on the scene and you chose to move to Baltimore. Thank you. <laughs> that's a place to make your, I am, I'm serious. It's, it's taught me a lot, man. And we've learned a lot from you. I mean, you as a, as a young scholar coming in as an activist, uh, not afraid to wear both hats uh, and live both lives yeah. and turn your scholarship into something people that has meat on it that people can actually wrestle with and think this is part of how we can change our community, which is not just objective scholarship that you write and research and goes on some bookshelf somewhere. Right, right. This is this is for our lives that you're that you're dedicated to. Well I remember when I first came or as I was getting to know Baltimore and I got to know the Mark Steiner show and then people used to, they would say, you know, this is like the public university. And it was an inspiration to <laughs> me. Like, you know, yeah, like how do we break stuff down and, and be accessible wherever we are, you know, whatever chosen. If you're a lawyer, you got to be a lawyer for the people. Right. You know, if you're in media, you got to be a journalist for the people. You know, if you're a scholar, you got to be a scholar for the people. Like, That's right. You know, in many ways, oftentimes if we're in public sector, you know, public is paying our salary. So I view myself as a public servant. And, you know, we help pay for this show, and I'm glad. And so, and you've acted in that capacity as a public servant. And so that's what I think, you know, we're, we're just doing, well, paying back what's been, you know, what's been invested in us. Right. And I, that's why I've really been happy about this show and the opportunities that I've been given personally. And I think the, the work has been given a platform to get this message out. So thank you. Well, thank you. It's always good to have you with us. Dr. Lawrence Brown is Associate Professor of Community Health and Policy here at Morgan State University. Please go check out um, BRACE, the Baltimore Redevelopment Action Coalition for Empowerment Facebook page, and uh, you can just say, I want to join and be part of these really very civil, powerful, but intense conversations mm -hmm. that people don't always agree. This is really good conversations going on on this Facebook page, and you, you want to, it is the, one of the best Facebook pages in this country, clearly the, 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 uh, the newest and best Facebook page in Baltimore in a long time. Uh, between that and David Troy's page, I think we really have community forums that are really very powerful. And brother, thank you so much. Maybe we can get you back on before we have to uh, darken the lights here. Absolutely. Well, we're going to keep the flame We're going to keep the flame burning. We're not going anywhere. The ain't going out. It's not going out. Thank you, man. Thank you. The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. More information, www.mecu.com. <laughs>